0: We have been sacrificing our education to protest against your inaction.
1: Ask the EU to stop caging animals.
2: To reconcile the economy with our planet. Set a timeline for fossil fuel phase out. To master the challenges of the digital age.
1: None of the European nations will be part of the G8. It is about where
3: we want to go and who we want to be. Hello
4: there, welcome to Citizen Central, a podcast series all about the first transnational democracy instrument in the world, the European Citizens Initiative. Brought about back in the Lisbon Treaty, the ECI gives people the chance to pitch their own EU policies to the European Commission by gathering 1 million signatures from seven EU states. My name is Maeve McMahon. I'm an Irish reporter in Brussels, and on Citizen Central, I'll be finding out what exactly the ECI is, how you can launch or support one, and what drives people to give up their time and energy for a cause they care deeply about. This chapter of Citizen Central begins in Belgium, where we meet Ella, the leader of an ECI called Reclaim Your Face, that's trying to ban biometric surveillance all across the EU. Then we'll be off to Portugal, where Katerina Neves tells us about her ECI that wants all Europeans to have the right to a universal basic income. Welcome to this brand new chapter of Citizen Central. Technology is ever-present in our way of life. It evolves at a very fast pace and it's not easy for policy to keep up with it. And that's the case of biometric surveillance, the topic of our next guest ECI, Reclaim Your Face. Ella Jakubowska, thank you so much for joining us on Citizen Central. First question, Ella, tell us more about yourself.
5: I'm Ella Jakubowska, and I work as a policy advisor at EDRI, fighting for digital rights. And I also help coordinate the Reclaim Your Face campaign to ban biometric mass surveillance in Europe. Can you tell us more about this technology and about your ECI? In public squares, parks, at protests, in lots of different forums where people rely on being able to you know, attend, to participate. People are now actually being tracked, watched and analysed. So RECI is calling to stop uses of facial recognition and other related technologies when they're used in ways that treat every person as a criminal suspect. We rely on the state to protect our rights with privacy, being able to raise our voices and express ourselves. And there are only small circumstances in which that can be intruded on, and that needs to always be proportionate and necessary under law because you only have to look back into history to see what happens when governments have too much control. With this rise of biometric mass surveillance, we're all being controlled, often in ways that we're not even aware of. People are being judged for whether they look like they might be a shoplifter or they look like they're aggressive. That can have huge consequences for all of us. So everyone is at risk when these technologies are being used constantly, but in particular, there are also certain groups that are extra at risk. And these fall along the historical lines of discrimination and prejudice that we see in many areas of society. So we very much see people of color and migrants being especially targeted by these technologies, human rights defenders. We see sex workers, LGBT people, people with disabilities, our sexuality, our religious beliefs, our health status. We're meant to be able to be yourself without anyone putting limits on that. So really, it's quite an existential threat that these practices, Practices to our societies.
4: And what type of legal measures are you proposing exactly to protect citizens and
5: communities? We want any of these practices, when they lead to or could lead to the what we call the undue restriction of people's fundamental rights, for them to be all out prohibited. They don't even achieve what they are claimed to, to be for. No amount of time is going to make them any better. All that's going to happen is they're going to get more accurate, which in fact makes them even more able to target and follow and surveil
4: people. But Ella, these technologies are said to make Europe more secure. What's the counter argument to your
5: ECI? Sometimes when you know, we're having debates with industry, they say, you hate technology, you you wouldn't let people unlock their phones with their face or their iris or their fingerprint. And actually, I come from a background working in technology. I love some uses of technology when they're used responsibly. It's not about not wanting technology or advancement. Actually, what we call for is not for things like biometric authentication on your phone to be banned, because that's very different to actually governments and and private companies secretly recording you as you attend a demonstration. So we're, we're not stopping people from having that autonomy to unlock their phones. It's definitely not the same level of risk as being watched and captured all the time everywhere you go. Bye.
4: Well, technology as a whole is such a hot topic. Have you received many institutional reactions to your
5: ECI? We've had some some pretty cool developments since then. The European Commission has proposed something called the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is going to be, when it's adopted, the rulebook for how artificial intelligence is developed and used in the EU. Even a year ago, maybe wouldn't have thought possible to have the beginnings of a ban in that law, but it's a start. And we've had people from the European Commission explicitly say, that a lot of those prohibitions wouldn't be there in the act if it weren't for the pressure of civil society. So I think that's a really big thumbs up for our campaign, for the pressure that we've been exerting. And we're seeing political shift as a result. Even though you get all these extra benefits from having an ECI that you can demand legal change, you can demand new laws, it's definitely a lot more defined and rigorous than starting your own petition through a petition website because you've had a quick idea and you think it's worthwhile. We so often talk about the EU as this homogenous block and I think some people think this is the thing that imposes rules on us and it's abstract and it's far away and it has no connection to my daily life. And, and so I think ECI is a one way that people can see the connection between their daily lives and the EU. And Ella, what about the press
4: reaction to your ECI? Has it grabbed any headlines or Have any MEPs come to you or
5: reacted to it? Yeah, we've had a a really great response to it, actually. Um, I think on the day that we launched, we had maybe 30 big publications report on it. It's a topic of global relevance and interest. But then also within, within the EU, we've been blown away with the support that we've had from the European Parliament. The Parliament, I think in general, really gets why this is an important issue for our democracy. Anella, who in the EU uses biometric surveillance and for what purpose? Pretty much every EU member state, certain authorities have placed whole cities under biometric mass surveillance and other forms of data capture, often without people's knowledge that this is happening. Um, and it's then being used to make judgments about them including things like their life outcomes or their level of aggression. Um, And we've seen that targeting things like people sitting on a wall because they're considered to be loitering. So, you know, you you hear, oh, this is necessary for our security. But actually, if it's stopping a homeless person from being able to sleep somewhere, it seems to be about criminalising certain behaviours and persecuting certain groups of people. You would definitely think twice about attending a protest if you knew that you could be identified for being there. And we have genuinely hundreds of examples examples of it being done by both companies and local authorities or police forces. It's the antithesis of what we're supposed to have as EU. A lot of the arguments and justifications that we hear are are nothing more than myths. They are not the things that are going to give us freedoms in, in a democratic society.
4: Okay, Ella, thank you so much for being with us and explaining why your ECI is so important to all of us.
5: Thank you for having me.
4: Well, now let's get the expert take on this ECI. And for that, we're off to Spain to meet Gemma Caldon Clavel, a historian and social science expert who, through her digital rights foundation, is a global pioneer at auditing algorithms and other technologies that are changing our world. Gemma, welcome to Citizen Central.
0: Thank you for having me. First question. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay, so I'm Gemma Caldon Clavel. I'm the director of the Ethicus Foundation. Which is a foundation uh, that has as a mission to protect people in technology processes. I'm a historian and social and political scientist by training. I started working on technology a long time ago, initially in security technology, so I was a police trainer for quite some time. And one of the things that I realized when I started working on technology is that we're doing a lot of things wrong. (laughs) And that I felt that I could contribute something to to making technology better through my knowledge, not only of technology, but also of social issues around technology.
4: So Gemma, first up, what is your opinion on biometrics and for using them for security purposes?
0: So for some reason, in the last few years, with the advancement of technology and our ability to use body traits as identifiers, we've jumped to the conclusion that biometrics are a secure way to identify ourselves. You can fake an ID number, but you cannot fake your fingerprints or your iris. And that makes sense, but then it doesn't. We are turning passwords into this physical trade that we can never change. So if the person who's asking for our physical traits and our biometrics then doesn't take good care of them and our face gets stolen, we can't change our face to reclaim our security and our privacy. The whole world has become convinced that biometrics is the most secure way of identifying someone when actually we have no data on that. And the the long list of dangers that come with using physical traits as identifiers, I think it's something that we need to discuss and talk about. So I would say biometrics is an identification method that can be useful in some very specific contexts, but used to unlock phones and to cross borders like we're doing right now, it makes no sense.
4: Would you say that technology is neutral?
0: No, it isn't. And that's a very long subject, but it's a fascinating thing. I I often use the example of archaeologists. So when an archaeologist goes to an archaeological site, what they do is they unearth physical pieces used by a civilization and they rebuild the values of that civilization through their tools. So technology is never neutral because it emerges in a context. And so the tools that we use say something about us. In the same way that finding the way that people were buried on the or the kind of knives that people used in ancient times tells us a lot about their economy their social relations a lot of people say so a knife is neutral because it can kill someone but it can also free you from something Yes, but knives only emerge when we need to cut meat. So they say something about our diet, about how we relate to nature. Technology is never neutral because it reflects all of those things. And I think that even archeologists came back to our era and unearthed our technological tools, they would find a very unequal society where the technologies that we use are always increasing the power of the powerful. So in that sense, they can never be neutral because they always emerge in a context. The fact that they're not neutral doesn't mean they're good or bad. It just means that they're embedded with values. And we need to look at those values. We need to understand those values and to ensure that our technologies are not making undesirable things worse. And that's one of my greatest fears at the moment, that because we don't understand technology, because we don't have an educated debate around technology, we are just promoting technologies that go against some of the things that we care for, like inequality or climate change.
4: And do you think that we modify our behavior when we're being watched?
0: there's a long-standing debate on these issues and whether we actually change our behavior when we are being watched. There's also people that say that we normalize the eye of the watcher. What is problematic is that many of those technologies are designed to change our behavior. An important part of being free is being able to negotiate your identity and who you are, how you present yourself, the ability also to change to be uh, someone different when you were 50 than when you were 30 or when you were 15. I think that's a very important part of being human. If all our data is encoded and kept, if we cannot as a society forget who we were, I think that's a fundamental change in, in how we inhabit <laughs> Earth and ourselves.
4: And do you think that our tech craze is giving technology developers way too much freedom?
0: It's not that the field is difficult to regulate, it's that the actors in the field do not want to be regulated.
4: Thank you so much for sharing your immense knowledge with us and for joining us here on Citizen Central.
0: Very happy to share my experience and expertise with you.
4: Now, as Ella mentioned, biometrics is a topic of huge interest to the international press. And for more on that, we're off to Italy now to meet Ludovic Iona, an investigative journalist, He'll tell us what happened when she tested biometric border control when entering Europe.
3: I have experience as a project leader in various cross-border investigations. One of these investigations investigated the impact of biometric technologies on the management of European borders for security aims. The new technologies consisted in an artificial intelligence system, which detects the movement of your face and your eyes, and immediately you can say if you are saying the truth or not. At the time, it was being tested at the border between Hungary and Serbia. So. I went to the border to Serbia in a hotel before crossing the border with Hungary. I clicked to that link. It appeared the avatar of a female policeman asking me to upload my documents. She asked me where are you from, where are you going, and I answered honestly. At the end of the interview, I was given a QR code. The day after, I presented this QR code to the Hungarian border policeman and he saw the score that I got. And the score was 48 on 100. According to the policeman, I was considered a person that should undergo further checks. I mean, I was not really afraid because I knew it was a test. If I had been a migrant or a foreigner, it could have been considered like a terrorist because this is the reason of the project, to find dangerous people. According to the system, I had said the truth only in three times. I had lied four times. The rest, the system was not sure about. So it made me think of how dangerous these technologies could be. As a journalist, I think this is a very interesting story. As a citizen, I'm very worried because uh, it shows more and more funding is going to security technologies, but less funding is going to social activities that could help security, maybe more than uh, surveillance, surveillance and surveillance.
4: Now, technology has a deep impact on our society, and there's a huge fear that robots will hit many professions hard and limit work opportunities for workers all around the world. Probably a key reason for the next ECI we'll discover universal
2: basic income. Catarina Neves, welcome to Citizen Central. Thank you for having me today. So my name is Catarina Neves. and I'm a PhD student in Portugal and I've been working on basic income for the past two and a half years and have been working in the ECI for the past year and a half. I started my PhD two years ago. My advisor, Roberto Meirio, is the national coordinator for the ECI in Portugal. And so I started collaborating in the Portuguese agenda for basic income. Our main goal is that we want European mission to make a proposal for unconditional basic income throughout the EU. And has it caused a big impact so far? For most of the time, a pandemic was raging in Europe. In-person events were very difficult to do in most countries. We have now 25 countries engaged in BCI with national coordinators, and we've been able to get get a lot of, of signatures. Well, it sounds like quite a challenge. Have you learned a lot so far, do you think? I've been learning a lot also because I'm kind of a junior member. So there are a lot of people who have been engaged in the UBI movement for quite a long time. So I'm learning a lot from them every day. Portugal is in the tail of Europe, sometimes news reach very slow. But I was not aware how people connect so strongly because of the ECI and because of UBI. How would the CCI look exactly if it was successful? Different countries have very particular welfare state mechanisms. We would like the European Commission to say this is a good idea as a way to have a more comprehensive welfare state. So we have countries where an 800 euro UBI would be low But we have other countries where a UBI of 300 euros could be transformational. So for now, what we would like to have is really a strong debate in several countries of what a UBI is and what it could do to solve some of the challenges that they are facing. Well, Katarina, I imagine most politicians will be wondering, how on earth should this be paid? I'm always kind of sad when the first question that they ask is, how should we pay for it? From my experience talking with people, that's not the first question that they ask. Is this fair? Should we have this implemented? Should we receive money if we are not working? Those questions would be so much more interesting. You might have wealth tax, inheritance tax implemented to finance, or where you have a progressive tax system and you have a UBI that's funded through there. We think people could and should work if they would like to, but labor activation should not be the end goal of a UBI. And would this not turn people off, actually, like, setting their alarm clock and going to work? For example, if we had a UBI of 1,000 euros in Portugal, our minimum wage now is around 700 euros. If you give everyone 1,000 euros, I'll bet some people will stop working. What is important is to say, would we like to have that as a society, to have people working less or not? And how do you think it would impact economic growth? If people had more, would they spend more? You give people money for them to spend. So it's a stimulus policy and for sure it will get the economy moving. But it's also a supply side policy. And that's the thing we don't discuss as much because the UBI will probably also change your outlooks on work, on education. But this is all highly theoretical. Now, Katarina, the
4: agricultural sector is pretty subsidised in the European Union, but many people working in it have pretty low incomes. How do you think the UBI would work in their favour? So there's the idea
2: that UBI could potentially help people deciding to work in agriculture, for one thing, and also to invest in more restorative practices of agriculture instead of intense agriculture. I think that in particular countries, it could help more than subsidies have and in getting more people to rural areas instead of all being cramped up in, in urban context.
4: And Katerina, do you not think this UBI clashes with the principle of capitalism? <laughs>
2: you <laughs> I can tell you my own perspective. UBI is one of those topics that can have people from all over the political spectrum. My take is that I think UBI shakes the foundations of capitalism if it's granted at a sufficiently high level because it makes us say no to work. If you decommodify labor that way, you break one of the main foundations of capitalism. And I think that would be very positive, especially now that we are moving towards a place where we should probably consume less, work less, and be more mindful of our environment and of our personal relations. We have been remarkable at creating jobs that no one needed. Some horrible jobs that exist today either will have to stop existing or have to be very good paid for us to do them. But for sure, this connects with the future of work because if we are going to have less jobs available, then how can we enforce these types of obligations?
4: Okay, thank you so much, Katerina, for joining us here on Citizen Central.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
4: Now, the future of work, well, it's an important topic for all of us. So let's get more now and head to Brussels and bring in Mihai Palimarichuk. He's from the European Policy Centre. Mihai, welcome to Citizen Central.
1: Hi, everybody.
4: Tell us about yourself and your work.
1: Uh, my name is Mihai Palimarichuk. I am a policy analyst at the European Policy Centre. I work with the Social Europe and Wellbeing Programme, where we look at all things Europe that have to do with social. My uh, particular area of expertise is the future of work, labour markets, the impact of digital on the labour markets and so on.
4: So we are speaking to the right person about this.
1: Hopefully I am.
4: Now, globalization and the digital age would probably destroy many existing jobs. And there's movements all around the world for a four-day working week. Why do you think we don't have a UBI scheme in the EU?
1: Some countries do have uh, programs that are kind of a globalization transition mechanism where if you lose your job due to automation, you do receive uh, benefits and you can use them to train and so on. I think that most people have the problem with the universality, right? So in short, why, why don't we have a universal basic income? Is because it's very expensive. So I think that any welfare problem is a distribution problem uh, that we're trying to solve. We have limited resources, and to create uh, a higher impact. And to do that, at some point have to pick and choose our battles. So I think that it's important to fight the displacement effect of technologies. And to that, I do believe that we need to fund a lot of training schemes, and we need to really pick up the industries that are suffering the most because of these transformations. But the problem with UBI is that it doesn't only target that, it also spreads resources thin to people that might not really need it.
4: Well, in this aspect, Mihai, age is a big player, right? I mean, the future looks very technological. So is that future also going to welcome mature members of the workforce, or will they be excluded?
1: A lot of the problem has to do with what kind of policy mix do you have to take for people who are already working, who have big wealth of experience, but it might become redundant or not as important anymore. And so how do you transition them to other jobs? And I'm afraid there is no easy solution. The blatant truth is that some people will not be able to transition in a highly intensive knowledge economy, but even then we should support them. And I think that we need to help people retrain and reskill, But there are some people who are close to retirement that they can't retrain. The government should just step in, uh, subsidize those jobs, or uh, perhaps create a public guarantee. Because what's important is to maintain the social fabric at the end, right? And to maintain good lives. You know, young people are more flexible and they have the advantage of having so much time ahead of themselves and they can stop, pick up again a new skill and in some Time, there'll be experts in it, not so much with, uh, with an older person, and that's fine. We, we should see it from, uh, from both aspects of training new people, reskilling, upskilling, but also helping older people and maintaining their integrity.
4: And do you think digitalization creates geographical differences? Would a UBI be more logical in some areas than others?
1: One of the big issues with the future of work and with the impact of technologies is inequalities. So one thing that digitalization can do is to increase inequality, so to increase between high-skilled professions, low-skilled professions. And sometimes you do need different policy responses to, to combat them so i do believe that people who are in low skilled jobs for example need more help training because they're not in- encouraged and they don't have the same incentives for example in some of the developing world i actually think ubi is a great idea sometimes it's it's, it's all about distribution you know, welfare and helping people distribution of resources but we have infrastructure to distribute those resources and we have let's say more efficiency even though as europeans we really like to to point out every time that the government doesn't do a good job and so on in, in some other countries and in some other contexts where that institution is fragile actually ubi is quite efficient and fast it can enable them to to have a good life and to use uh, more time to upskill ubi is sometimes popular but at the same time i'm a bit worried of chasing too much trends in in, in politics i think you know it's important to increase trust in public sector and in government but that should be done by choosing good policies that have greatest impact rather than chasing trends i would rather focus on how do you make new jobs that are enticing for people because people do want to work i think this is what has showed from from all of these experiments is that at the end of the day people do want to take up one job or another
4: okay mihai thank you so much for joining us here on citizen central
1: No, thank you very much for inviting me.
4: That brings this edition of Citizen Central to an end. Thank you so much to all our guests and of course to you for listening. And if you fancy finding out a little bit more about any of these ECIs, do check out our show notes. And you can also take a look at the ECI website or follow the ECI's individual social media channels. And of course, if you want to propose a brand new ECI, you can head over to the ECI forum to learn more about how to get started. I'm Meg McMahon. And you've been listening to Citizen
2: Central.